0: Hello and welcome to the sixth episode of TP with TP, that's the podcast with Tom Polos. We have an amazing program for you guys today. Olympic medalist, IOC member, and the president of LA84, Miss Anita de France, joins me, as does the star of MTV's I Just Want My Pants Back, Peter Back. Also, a guy from my apartment complex claims he's going to drop by. I'll believe it when I see it, hopefully you guys will hear it. Listen to the podcast with Tom Polos, aka TP with TP. Welcome back to TP with TP. I'm sitting beside uh, Anita De France, who is an Olympic medalist, International Olympic Committee member, and the president of LA84. Mr. France, welcome on the program. Thank you very much. Now I'm sitting beside. She's going to be humble about this, but I will not be humble for her. She is uh, one of, if not the most influential woman in sports. That's not just me talking. Uh, Anita DeFrance's influence has been documented by Sports Illustrated, ESPN, Sporting News, Sports Business Journal, the NCAA, the NAACP, the YMCA, YWCA, Boys and Girls Club of America. I could go on and perhaps mention the scores of honorary degrees she's been awarded, but we have to get to the interview at some point. Um, But before we get to the important work that LA84 does, I'd be remiss if I didn't take this moment to A, applaud you for what you've done for this city, this country, but also talk to you a little bit about the Olympics as the London Games do approach. And you won a bronze medal in the 76 games of Montreal. I did. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, the first African-American to do so.
1: In the noble sport of rowing. That's
0: right. Tell us how you got involved
1: in that sport first and how your talent escalated so quickly. <laughs> well, I was very fortunate to be walking across the campus of Connecticut College that day when there was this odd looking thing in front of the central building on campus and I went over to see what it was and the man standing there said it's rowing and you'd be perfect for it and I thought well there's a line you know but I hadn't been perfect for anything to that (laughs) moment I thought okay let me try this out and I loved it um the only requirement is that you know how to swim and I'd been swimming since I was four years old so that wasn't a problem and the sport appealed to me because you're very close to the water, but you're not in it. I like not being in water. That's right. <laughs> you uh, don't hurt anybody. You don't injure anyone. No your infections. That's right. And you're you're an environmentalist. You put the water right back where you found it. In <laughs> and uh, you might help the fish a little bit by airing airing out the water. Which river in uh, well, we it? started out actually in a place called. Um, uh, gosh, what was it called? Well, Okay, College line. is in New London, as opposed oh, to the Old London Games. That's right. And we rode eventually on the Thames, not the Thames, <laughs> but the Thames, we say it properly in New London. <laughs> Rowing
0: leads you to this amazing opportunity, the Montreal Games. You, yes. win, you win bronze in 76.
1: You it was won. not a direct line. I was demoted from varsity to JV my senior year in college. Same guy who said I'd be perfect for rowing said, but if you work hard, you could make the Olympic team. And thinking, That's, that seems
0: like a very weird thing well, to say. Was, you won't make our college team,
1: but you'll represent our nation. Not just our college team, a small co-educational New England college um, uh, you know, uh, team. I couldn't make the varsity, but I could make the Olympic. Well, he needed me to continue to row so that we could continue to have the team. I figured that out and I said, okay, I can do this. And I had a great time. I've learned a lot rowing JV my senior year. But then I did get accepted at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, Mm -hmm. and so I thought, hmm, Vesper Boat Clubs in Philadelphia, let's see, maybe I can make the Olympic team despite all these things. And uh, two years later, my second year of law school, I did become a member of the United States Olympic team that competed in Montreal, and we won a bronze medal in the eight-oared shell with coxswain. Yeah, it was me clapping, and so you win in
0: 76, you rededicate yourself to the sport, you take home silver at the world championships in 78, Correct. and progress hits a wall when in 1980 President Carter calls on the USOC to boycott the Moscow Games. Mm -hmm. What goes through your mind when that happens, when you're on pace to go back to the Olympics to fight for gold?
1: I had finished law school and passed the bar first time around. How many hours are in your day? Do you have more than 24 (laughs) Uh, hours in a day? I think I've lost all the extra I used to have. (laughs) I think that I went into debt long ago, (laughs) Um, but uh, all that was working well. And I, I had taken a leave of absence from the juvenile law center where I worked and um, do a train at Princeton University. And I'm grateful for Princeton to- Where you were also a coach. I coached a year later. Um, but that year, I was a pre-law advisor and an assistant master in a, in, a, in, a, in a college there, and um, training. And next thing I hear is, you know, we will not be going to Moscow. What went through my mind is, what mean we? You know, <laughs> where was we when I was freezing portions of my anatomy off training? What meant we since I am the only one who had financed my training? Not one penny of federal money went to any athlete training. Never has, probably never will. So I could not understand the so-called connection with the President of the United States and I and me as an individual citizen. And since I had been a part of the um, uh, testifying in Congress for the Amateur Sports Act of 1978, I understood the structure of of the Olympic movement in the United States. And with all due respect to the uh, Commander-in-Chief, it's only an honorary relationship with the Olympic committee. And yes, he was using the the bully pulpit of the presidency, but there was no direct relationship with my efforts as an individual citizen. And so I worked very hard to help people understand that. I worked hard to help the administration understand that not going would mean that nothing could be said. How did athletes combat that in 1980? Well, it was a tough moment because we are athletes. We understand that you have one coach and the head coach usually has the final say. And when the head coach is the president of the United States, usually that's the final say. But those of us who understood that there was no nexus, there was no connection. We were individual citizens who were happy and proud to do everything possible to represent the United States. And, and being and a law became, student, you would try to reason with him. And how did that well, reasoning by then go? I was a practicing attorney. Yeah, And uh, Philadelphia attorney, mind you. Um, and uh, I understood... The structure in the United States, we're one of the few countries in the world where there is no uh, uh, government involvement in sport, and certainly at the Olympic level there is none. We are all private and the money is is raised privately, and at that time there were no sponsorships. Remember, this is 1980, a whole different world, and uh, very few athletes made a living off of sport unless they were professional athletes back then, that's why one Olympic Games was... was rare and two was extraordinary so um, it was a different world but it was easy for people who had no investment to say oh well they can wait another four years and mm-hmm. silly why do they have to go to Moscow they're bad
0: people there did, did anyone label the people who were fighting to go to Moscow anything more than just athletes trying to fight for a medal did they label them as Russian
1: sympathizers was there any talk of that oh I had horrible things said to me I had hate mail I had death threats I had uh, really, really mean things happened. It was very uncomfortable, but I understood. I understood that I was right, that we were the ones, the athletes who were selected to be the Olympic team, were the only ones who should have been deciding to go or not go. And in fact, uh, the rest of the world was there. Puerto Rico was there. Um, Teams from, uh, from Great Britain, from Italy, from France, from most of our our allies, West Germany, they were still in East and West Germany in 1980, West Germany stayed home, Canada stayed home, Japan stayed home. Most of the rest of the world went to the games.
0: You wrote this essay in 2007 entitled, The Team With No Result, yes. talking about that experience. In it, I found something very interesting. They did try to compensate or celebrate you guys not going. You got invited to the White House, had a quote-unquote parade. Mm-hmm. Um, was that sort of salt in the wound
1: or did you feel like that was an actual effort? Well it might have been better if the USOC didn't have to pay for it all of that um, but that's the way it works if you go to the White House you have to pay it's otherwise taxpayers pay so the USOC funded all of that and I probably was one of the few athletes who understood that because again I had been involved with I was on the executive board of the US Olympic Committee at the time so I really knew how things worked and what we had to budget for. Um, it was a chance for parents to come and celebrate the, uh, their, their family's successes, so I could not deny my parents a chance to come to Washington and actually go to the White House. It was up to them whether or not they wanted to visit with the president. Uh, they chose not to, as did I, but I was part of a team. You've met many presidents. Have you ever met President Carter? Yes, I didn't. Meet President Carter, and I have a great deal of respect for him. I think he was—I know he was wrong on this item, and I'm, I deeply regret that I was not able to get to meet with him specifically to explain to him what could be done and to explain to him what was being taken away from athletes. I think most people in this country just had no clue how hard you had to work to become an Olympian. We're kind of a fast-food society. You—you mm-hmm. you, you don't hear anything about Olympians, and suddenly they're on television. Winning medals, you hear nothing about what it takes to train. Every four years, they just, yeah. You have no idea how, how hard it is or how much people invest of their life into training, the life decisions that you have to make. People say, well, you sacrificed. I said, no, no, I didn't sacrifice. I made decisions, but I expected a chance to have a return. And the problem with what happened in 1980 is we'll never know. We are literally the team with no result there was no war that intervened, there was no natural disaster, it was simply a political decision that destroyed our opportunity. If,
0: if there's any bright spot that comes out of it, it leads to your involvement in getting involved in judicial, legislative, and governing bodies of the Olympics. You got involved in the next Olympic Games, the LA Games of 84. Mm-hmm. You've been on every type of committee, every type of commission from Finance to eligibility to law to reform. You chair the Women in Sport Commission. How has the game changed for better and worse since you've been involved on the other side?
1: My hope is that it's gotten better for the world. I know that for a fact. There are more women involved with sport at every level, and that's the natural um, that's the natural turn of things in the world. I love. There's a saying that I love. Women hold up half the sky. Together, we have to hold up the entire sky. And in the world of sport, we've made strides on the field of play. In, from 1900 to 1984, around 12,000 women are, became Olympians. That means you competed in the Olympic Games. From 1988 to 2010, 26,000 women have competed in the Olympic Games. So we've more than doubled the number of women who competed, which means we've more than doubled the number of women who've had that experience. And there's nothing like living in the Olympic Village where you're living in a, a community... Which you which you helped
0: run in the 1984 Games. I
1: did, and I'm proud to say that uh, I knew a lot of the athletes then, and I knew that they would let me know whether it worked well or not, and um, we did okay by my contemporaries. Um, we made sure that, you know, it's, it's, I told my staff that we're going to have 7,000 of our closest friends come over and visit for about three and a half weeks, and we need to make sure that they're happy and comfortable because they've got an important test with history and we gotta make sure that at the end of their day they're happy and they had a fair chance.
0: The last time the United States had the Olympic Games uh, the Summer Games it was in Atlanta 96. You worked on the committee to get Atlanta to host. What goes in for a city to be able to host the games A and is it different for summer and winter? Do you try <laughs> to create the uh, an atmosphere? Do you try to go into places where you might be able to cross barriers, or is it just about
1: having the facilities to do it? Over time, uh, the, the appeal of a city has changed, and indeed, the way the IOC goes about, the, the selection process has changed. When when Atlanta was bidding, it was during a brief era from 1986 to, 19, uh, I guess, 1998, uh, eight or nine, the IOC actually allowed IOC members to visit cities. Prior to that, it never happened, prior to 1986, people didn't visit cities. Um, and uh, People started visiting cities, and it happened in 1986. There were six cities bidding to host the Olympic Games and seven cities bidding to host the Olympic Winter Games, and it just was nuts. And so cities were doing all sorts of things to entice. And in 84, LA was the only city to bid on the Games. It was, except LA bid three times in a row. It managed to get the US Olympic Committee to select it three times in a row. The first time, it bid against um, Moscow and Montreal, and Montreal won. The second time, it bid against Moscow, and Moscow won. The third time, there was one other city in, but removed itself. We like to say it was Tehran, and they had management issues. But I'm pretty sure the world knew that L.A., for the third time, was really whatever city the U.S. had set forward was probably going to win the right to host the Games. Uh, The United States, and certainly the city of Los Angeles, had been prepared to bid three times. And uh, it is true, therefore, to an extent there was no other city, but it was also true that Los Angeles had stood strong and was the city. Then L.A. says, oh, by the way... uh, we're really not interested in taking any financial responsibility for that. It was like, oh my God, we only have L.A., but now they're not going to be financially responsible. What do we do? And the United States Olympic Committee said, okay, we'll take care of it with its $5 million in non-liquid assets. It was the financial guarantor of the 84 games. The 1984 Olympic Games in Los Angeles were truly the only games done in the private sector. Only 52 you no, $52 million of taxpayer money was spent, and that was spent because to do things that only the federal government can do. For example, BVIP security, the customs, and, and, you know, certain things that only the government can do, and that's why there was that much taxpayer's money spent. Later games, the things changed, and more government involvement came to, came to view. And certainly by the time of the Salt Lake City Olympic Winter Games, just after 9-11, huge involvement by the military to secure the you games. You talk about the Salt Lake City Games, and you also mentioned the private
0: sector. When you worked on the Salt Lake City Games, which I know you did, mm-hmm. did you have any chance to work with
1: presidential candidate Romney? I, well, who is now presidential candidate. Yes. Yeah. With, yes, with Mitt Romner before he was even the governor of Massachusetts. Yes, he was, uh, he was brought in uh, as, from Boston, to become president of the organizing committee. And he touts that as a... Um, as a big stepping point for him, that he turned the games around. Well, he certainly invested his, his life into making sure that those games were successful, but there are a, a lot of staff Mm-hmm. and a lot of people, the citizens of Salt Lake City and the and the surrounding communities put a lot into those games, as did the athletes. It's the athletes that make the game successful, Absolutely, with all the respect. Uh, and as as a native New Yorker,
0: I'll get off this host train in a second. Why, <laughs> why, why not New York? Why can't they get it together? Uh, well,
1: it wasn't so much New York, I was disappointed. I thought it was...
0: As an IOC member, mm-hmm. are you like do you, no, no. How 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 American city invested are you when you go
1: into those meetings? When a city is selected uh, by my country, I am a hundred percent behind that city. And and New York had wonderful venues. Most people have no idea what New York had to offer. Beautiful sites, beautiful venues. The the rowing venue right there, you know, where you could see it on the way to the airport to mm-hmm. JFK or back. It would and there is a rowing program there now, although. It was never the two two thousand meter course was never put in. Magnificent, I mean, where the Olympic Village would be across from the UN. Uh, it was a beautiful uh, program, a beautiful bid, but it was too soon. It was too soon. I was shocked that the USOC was putting a city forward so soon. How could we host that many games in a row? I think that. Uh, the leadership of the USOC was just wrong in putting the city forward. So, so it, is, it is
0: about that timing, and when of course it is. Chicago was putting forward a city. Well,
1: Chicago had a different um, challenge.
0: And didn't Barry go to go to Denmark to try to persuade some people?
1: Well, he was there, and certainly it was his city, and I greatly respect his making himself available for that. I, I disagree with many of my IOC colleagues. I don't think it's necessary to have the chief of state present to make the bid. I think having a videotape is, is good enough for me. I don't think it's necessary to have the heads of state come and then say, yes, I, I believe in this. I think that's not necessary. So it's waste, was, waste of frequent flyer miles? Well, there's that. And if you care about the environment, you really need to have these jets landing mm-hmm. and then taking off. Um, to me, uh, the commitment on video is enough. The challenge for Chicago was, why Chicago? Rio said, hey, it's never been in this part of the world. Chicago, well, we'll do great games. Well, the US always does great games. We could mm-hmm. never get Chicago to say, what is it specifically?' Yeah, more of an identity. Always, with an IOC member, after a decision is made, of course, everyone voted for the winning city. That's always the case.
0: <laughs> so unanimous. everyone
1: needs to know why you voted for them. Rio, it was easy. It's never been in this part of the world take take when Sydney beat Beijing the first time I mean how could you have a a city that's tiny compared with the the number of people in Beijing well Australia had always been loyal to the Olympic Games they competed at every single games done that's nice so you can always you need to have a reason and we could not come up with a reason for Chicago
0: how does London in their opening ceremonies, at least, compete with
1: Beijing? It doesn't. (laughs) There is no, we have a no compete rule. Does it start and end with Beijing? Was that the most spectacular thing you've ever seen? Or did you like the rocket man in LA 84? People will say LA. It wasn't only the rocket man, it was sitting in the venue and suddenly realizing you're part of opening ceremonies by holding up, holding up a piece of paper and you're Mm. part of a flag. I mean, that probably stunned people. And then closing ceremonies when the uh, the, the person from outer space came and yeah. visited. There were some athletes who we were on the main floor there who were just howling. They thought it was for real mm-hmm. um, because you couldn't tell, really, if you were down on the floor and you didn't know Hollywood. <laughs> each game brings something special. That's why we changed the venue. That's why different cities host the games and each city brings their special flavor. The LA84 games, as you said, had um, a lot of private
0: funding pretty much exclusive private funding, and also was able to have quite the surplus, make a pretty little profit, which led to this organization, LA84.
1: Tell me a little bit about LA84 and what it does and how it came to be. Okay, uh, when the United States Olympic Committee agreed to be the financial guarantor of the 1984 Olympic Games, it made a deal with the organizing committee here saying that, okay, if we have a surplus then we'll keep $0.60 and you, Southern California, can keep $0.40. So that was the deal that was done in 1978. Um, Turned out that the surplus was more than a dollar. And so (laughs) L.A. was able to keep $93 million, and the U.S. Olympic Committee uh, received close to about $180 million. The whole time we were working uh, as a staff member, we were told we'll have a surplus and that surplus will go back to sport. So we worked hard to make sure the games would be wonderful for the athletes and that there might be a tiny little surplus left (laughs) over. So our $93 million that were left here to endow the LA 84 Foundation um, has been able to to grow to uh, over 200 million that we put back into the community through making grants to use sports programs, teaching people how to coach. We have the best sports library in the world, which is we're in the process of digitizing. We undertake research.
0: With public funding being so scrutinized these days, how does LA84 combat athletic and intramural programs being cut in schools? How can you go about
1: informing people that it, life ready through sport is a really important creed? Oh, thank you for that. That is exactly correct. Life ready through sport. We've learned that kids who take part in in team sports in middle school will graduate from high school and we're working with a program called Beyond the Bell with the LA Unified School District and we have over 20,000 kids taking part in after school team sports. And I I can, well, I can guarantee you that a large percentage of those kids will graduate from high school. We know that sports has an extraordinarily positive effect on lives of kids and on girls in particular. Having that team sport experience means that they're no longer afraid to ask for help. They don't have to work with only their very best friends. They learn that they can have a goal with other kids who may or may not be their friends and they can they can uh, have success in working with those other girls and the boys just the same. And the respect that comes from taking part in sports. We like the fact that we can have teachers be coaches after school and so to learn to have a different relationship with the kids that they teach. These things are all very important and we have the research to show that it's true and my goal is to make sure the kids across this nation have access to team sports. It will make the difference in our country.
0: Sports is embedded in our country, in our country's history, and our culture as is uh, the phrase just do
1: it with Nike. <laughs> How has Nike teamed up with LA84? We've had a number of wonderful partnerships, we've helped with creating new play spaces for kids and one of our favorite uh, aspects of that play space is using Nike Grind, which is uh, the fact Nike will take anybody's old running shoes or tennis shoes uh, and they grind it up and then they use the little pellets as a part of a play field. Either um, if it's artificial grass, it's used to help uh, cushion the play field or The the rubber can be made into uh, basketball courts, Um, and we've done a large number of play fields with them. Is there anything else upcoming we should know about, about LA84? We're working very hard on this middle school initiative. We want to make sure that every youngster has a chance to experience team sports while they're in middle school because it will make a huge difference in their lives. And so we're looking for corporations to join with us in that. It doesn't cost a lot, about $150 a kid and so we need some corporate support. We are a private foundation and so uh, our, our, our ability to to do this is limited and we want to make sure the kids throughout Southern California and across our nation have access to use team sports while they're in middle school because it will make a huge difference for the rest of their lives.
0: Well you've made a huge difference in uh, so many lives and including mine just yeah. now this lovely interview and I just want to thank you so much for taking the time. It's not just been a pleasure, but it's been an honor. So I really thank you for taking the time to come on our program.
1: Thank you. The pleasure is mine.
0: Welcome back to TPOTP. TP. I'm here in studio with Peter Vack from MTV's I Just Want My Pants Back. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you for
2: having me, Tom.
0: Peter, has anyone ever referred to your program as I Just Want My Pants Back?
2: They've, I, it's been referred to as I Just Want My Peter Vack Back, or I Just Want My Peter Vack. Okay. To me on Twitter, though. Oh, hashtag yeah. Peter
0: Vack. Where More can like, people
2: follow you on the tweet? They can follow me at PeterVack. They can follow you at, at PeterVac. Yeah, Vack. but no, no, at Vac, no spaces. But I have to warn everyone that I'm not that funny on Twitter. <laughs> I mostly just retweet nice things people say to me. Well, <laughs> that's, that's the
0: dream. Uh, it you've, is. You've, I'm living it. You've also seen Peter on such television series as Ghost Whisperer, Law & Order SVU, Hope & Faith, As the World Turns, Cold Case, etc. And he's appearing in some upcoming films, and he's been in some past films. But these upcoming films include uh, Kiss of the Damned and Unicorns, which we're both very excited about. Peter, you're from New York, yeah?
2: Yeah, correct.
0: And MTV's I Just Want My Pants Back isn't the first thing you've done in New York. You've done many things in New York. You also started out in your youth uh, in a little production of Richard III, yes?
2: Yes, yeah. That was like... Um...
0: And, and little production, <clears throat> I am you know being uh, sarcastic and a bit facetious, it was quite a large production. Will you please tell our listeners about that?
2: Yeah, oh, that was... Um... So fun. It was funny because when I got the audition for that, I had actually never acted, even attempted to act Shakespeare before. So my first thought was, I can't do this at all. Um, Because I was like a, I guess I was a senior in high school. So I got that no fear Shakespeare. It all comes out now. (laughs) I mean, you can't even, I mean, this is like, you can't even say this, but I'll just go for it. So I got the no fear Shakespeare and like translates, like gives you like a very literal sort of, um, a paraphrasing of the verse, <laughs> and I used that to decode the lines, and worked on it with my dad a lot. And it was like, oh, actually, you know what? I I think I could do this, and I get I, I like did a few auditions for it and got it. And it was just like, I mean, you you're know, wor- you you're working with these intense. Yeah, Peter, season- D- Peter Dinklage played Richard the Third, um, and uh he is. Amazing. Have you watched some of his work recently? You know, I've not seen Game of Thrones, which I'm sad to say, because I hear it's a fabulous show.
0: Well, you've been quite busy on your own fabulous show on MTV's I Just Want My Pants Back or Vac, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> congratulations on the success of it so far. Thanks. What's it like being in your native your native town, close to in mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, filming mm-hmm. filming in Greenpoint, the show? How does how does um, the setting inform the work you do?
2: I mean, it's so fun because. Um, you know there is this sort of excitement you get when you're shooting on location as opposed to shooting on a sound stage and like I I haven't done that much work on sound stages but like in, in when I've done come on to certain bigger big television shows I've worked on a stage and like it's fun but you always have to do this extra bit of work to sort of pretend that this very like cold dead sound stage is a real place but the great thing about shooting like on the streets of greenpoint brooklyn where where we shoot is you 're just like constantly being informed by the cool life around you, and there's real people on the street and the cars are real and like we we weren 't a huge budget show, so a lot of the times we weren 't even really working with that many extras we might have had a few, but then everyone else in the background was just a real person walking by. I also really appreciate when shows that are based in New York actually shoot there and I rarely see it it 's more I more so see it in films, so
0: the reality you guys bring to it is um Quite wonderful. And speaking of reality, MTV, not exactly known for scripted yeah, yeah, yeah. television series, but it seems to be headed in that direction.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think MTV would like to. Um, Put the TV back in MTV? Yeah, exactly. Put the, the TV back in MTV. and On TV and, with TP? Yeah, exactly. And um, I think they have really great tastes. Like, I really like the shows that they're doing. Uh, I think Awkward and Teen Wolf are really great. And I think that people are slowly but surely uh, catching on, that it's not. Just a place to go to watch a um, reality shows. Reality shows oftentimes seem more scripted than actually scripted shows. <laughs> yeah, right.
0: Do you have the ability to add any of your own flavor or words to "I just want my pants back"? Or how much the text do you have to keep?
2: Well, the our writers really are awesome. Um, Does the guy who wrote the original novel yes, work on yes, the scripts? Yes, yes, yes. So much so. I mean, he was the head writer and the showrunner, and almost. I mean, he, he was there at every, every step of the way, on set every day, overseeing it all. I mean, he really is the boss man, uh, David J. Rosen, and he's, I mean, he's a great friend and a great guy. But his voice is really specific, and the jokes are very, um, specifically written, but they do want us to add our own stuff sometimes, and, um... You know, I'm, I, I sometimes make very bad jokes that don't make it in, <laughs> um, but every once in a while they'll throw in one of my ad-libs and then I'm like,
0: yes! Now, there was a, a suggestion I picked up from you when I was doing my research for this about in the pilot episode about the actual pants that get taken.
2: Mm.
0: Now these pants that you want back are actually your pants. They're mine, yeah. In the pilot episode, they perhaps were going to give you a different pair of pants. You said, I wouldn't miss these pants. Yeah, no, they I, they, I would, they, I had had, like. they had really bad pants. They had
2: really bad jeans for me, and, and and granted, they had like no budget for the pilot, so they they just bought what they could get, and they you know it,
0: you know pants. They don't, are they like, don't have it, as good taste as you, Peter.
2: That's well, I'm saying, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, but like, well, you know, I think with jeans, even more so than anything, like you know, it's like hard to find jeans that really suit you. So mm-hmm. of course we had, to, of course, like unless I had, you go to like the gene pool. It What's the jean? Oh, the jean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Hopefully those jeans suit me well. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I had some jeans that I've, like, had holes in them, and I'd had them for years, and they were just, like, they were jeans you'd miss. You know, they were, like, they were really awesome. Um, in fact, they're so beaten up now that I can't even wear them anymore. Everyone seemed to have to be on
0: board with this project because, as you were mentioning to me, uh, usually shows have the ability to build and take time, but this shoot, was sort of rushed. Yeah, it was, it was so a, quick. a seven
2: week shoot. Yeah, we, the way we did it was interesting. We um it was called cross-boarding. So like, um for example, if this studio was sounds like, like a, a terror technique. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like for example, if we were shooting a television show about like your life, and this studio was um was a location, we would shoot like we shot in four episode blocks. So we would shoot like every scene in the studio in. All, all at once and then be done with it and then we'd move on to your apartment and then shoot all the scenes there and then we'd shoot so we'd be we were shooting four episodes at a time which is not the way it's usually done usually you shoot like episode one and then you're done with it you shoot mm-hmm. episode two and then you're done with it but because we were shooting episodes at a four episodes at a time we could um just like burn through them lightning quick peter now that you're in the public eye is that really what i am in I guess. I guess so.
0: Now you're in the public ear. (laughs) And uh, people on uh, the social medias and the interwebs have been writing about you. It's scary. And I'm going to pull up a little page that someone has reviewed you personally. Okay. And I would like you to read it.
2: Oh, boy. Could you
0: read what this person wrote? I'll read the subject. Okay. The subject of this post about Peter Vack (laughs) is, This guy arouses my curiosity. Read it, Pete.
2: Okay, so this is written by J.F. Moran forty nine. This is actually on IMDb Pro, but, uh, and so J.F. says this actor is stunningly beautiful. That's, that's nice to hear about yourself. <laughs> I'm gonna make a good a point of watching some of his works. From the clip I watched and from the fact of his having a Shakespeare gig on his resume, this guy arouses my curiosity. I only wish that I was about 20 years younger than I am, as male cougars are not in vogue right now. And actually, as male, that sentence is in parentheses. As well as healthier. And I wonder what that means. I wonder what the, I actually really wonder what he means by healthier. Um, so he says, "I only wish I was 20 years younger than I am. As male cougars are not in vogue right now, as well as healthier, would seriously consider asking this guy for a date, which is actually very nice. Uh, it is I mean, nice. That's a, he makes it sweet at the end. It's, I mean, it, he's it, not one he, of
0: those vicious no, online no, people who not, attacks. He's, he's p- not
2: really a predator. I mean, he's saying he would consider like seeing if I wanted to go on a on a date with on a date with him. That's very kind of him. And yeah, he seems like a nice guy. Do you ever see any negative things about you online?" Um, yeah, I, I remember I, well, okay, so he, the weird thing about Twitter, which I've just recently started doing, um, at, Peter Vack. at Peter Vack, because of the show, um, but so this. but the strangest thing, Tom, about doing, about <laughs> Twitter, uh, and you really, you, you, you can't actually do this all the time, and it's tempting, is you can just type in. I just want my pants back, and see what people are saying about it, like, up to the very second. Yeah, with the the
0: hash brown. Yeah,
2: yeah, the the hashtag. But not even. Like, even if I just want my pants back appears in any tweet, you can look at it. Um, And so in the beginning, this was very tempting, because, like, you could just see, and if it was on the air, it's even more so like literally tweets come in about like, oh, this show's cool. This show looks kind of dumb. Oh, this show is awesome. This show is so funny. I don't know why anyone likes the show. Like blah, blah, blah. You know, and like look, a lot of them are positive and some of them are bound to be negative. And I think one girl once said something like, that main actor is, like, I don't know, it was really mean. It was like, that main actor is, like, dirty and ugly or something <laughs> oh, like that. Oh,
0: <laughs> that is rude and yeah, not true. And yeah. J.F.
2: Moran disagrees. I know, J.F. Moran disagrees. No, but a lot of people say a lot. I mean, the, but honestly, the majority of things are very complimentary and very flattering. But you know how those negative things just tend to stick with you. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Well, sometimes you just want to call home and talk to your
0: parents. And your parents, your dad, in particular, has something really cool going on. Yeah, right now. yeah. And I would like to give you the platform to to, to talk yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah. Discuss um, what, what what is your dad up to? Your dad uh, originally went to New York to to get involved in the theater. Yeah, and all that yeah, jazz. Yeah. And it's it's progressed into um, wonderful opportunities for him. And one new venture of his is right. a restaurant.
2: Right. Well, I actually also want to say that um, my dad's done many things, and he was an actor when he first came to New York City. And Uh, then he went into the restaurant business and was there for about 20 years and then about 10 years ago or maybe a little bit more got out of the restaurant business to make feature films and we made a movie together which is close to getting some distribution so it's called Consent. Congratulations. Yeah 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 and it's it's uh, it's something I'm really proud of and we shot it like four summers ago and it's been like a very as as is as it is with independent films like a long emotional ups and downs but but I, 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 it's gonna, it's, it's coming close to a deal. You will is see cool. the light. Yeah, it, I think it will, and I'm really, I'm actually really excited for. E- even if only a handful of people watch it, I'm really, I really can't wait to, to share it with people because I'm, I'm very proud of it. But another thing that my dad and I sort of worked on together was is this restaurant called Barbancino that he opened in Crown Heights, and uh, it's a Neapolitan pizza joint. And he, like, about a year ago, he started looking for a location for a restaurant because he, he wanted to get back into that business. And he uh, knew he wanted to open up in Brooklyn because um, for an individual, it's become impossible to open up in Manhattan because it's just so expensive. So he sort of took nine months, actually, walking every borough in Brooklyn. So he did so much walking that he developed um, something called plantar fasciitis, which is actually that sounds which is actually something that usually overweight people who are overweight, my father's like a twig, get because they like, it's too much pressure on their like heels or their knees or something. So he was like, actually had developed a condition cause he did, cause he did so, I mean, it's, it's fine now, but did so much walking um, and looked at tons of locations in every conceivable block in Brooklyn, I mean, really i'm not even exaggerating so we found this space and it, it it blew our minds and the neighborhood was so perfect for what we wanted to for what he wanted to do which was this pizza joint and then he spent another year um well he he went actually in, and worked in a kitchen for uh uh like a month with the uh, the um uh, a family that imports these uh ovens from naples basically i helped him with really every step of it i mean we I met early stages I met with him and the architect and we and and sort of gave input on the layout and then when it came to the like aesthetic choices like the um, like I consulted on basically a, a, every aesthetic choice so I, I really feel like it was a, a great collaboration and and I'm we're like I I couldn't be more proud of it honestly like I I have a tendency. And when is it set to open? It's open. It's, it's open. 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 You can go. It's we've it, we're we've been doing really well. Do you deliver to California? We don't deliver n- anywhere yet, but we will eventually. <laughs> Do you, del- you deliver not in to house. California. It would not travel well, unfortunately. <laughs> um but yeah, it's a gr- it's a great space and we it's a full bar and pizzas and a few appetizers and it's it, it it, tell it, us the title of it one more it's time. Called Bar- and the cross it's streets. called Barbancino, and it's at seven eighty one Franklin Avenue between Lincoln and Saint John. And, and you get me- there on the two three four five train. <laughs> what made you come up with the name Barbancino? Oh, that's actually a good story. Um This is this is why I'm here, folks. We yeah, this is why you're here. We um it's so hard to come up with a name, actually. Like, we, we went through Why so Why didn't you go with Sexy Car Pizza Oven? That was one that, that, that we, we did taken. consider. Yeah,
0: actually, <laughs> it, was it, was t- it, was it was taken. It was taken. It was taken,
2: and we just wanted to have something original. Papa John's had it. Yeah, Papa John's owns the rights to so <laughs> many names. Yeah, so at first we wanted to do something that had the, the name of the neighborhood or something in there, but there's nothing felt right. And then we just sort of started going crazy. And, and, um, and like, the truth is, like, we're not an Italian family. Um, so we kinda, I couldn't
0: tell Peter. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and, uh, we, so it felt so, somehow to have something that was just like very, uh, we, we, it, it had to have some sort of like humor in it. Um, and then I don't know who it was. It might've been my mom, but she was like, we were just sort of looking up random words that felt like appropriate to us and what they were in Italian. And, and we have a toy poodle and we looked up toy poodle. We, and toy poodle in Italian is Barbancino. And, and we were like, "That is a so great name." It felt like it had a nice ring to it. It has the word "bar" in it, which is what we are, and it and it looked good in print. And it didn't take itself too seriously. I love, but yet we love our toy poodle, and we just it was just like instant. Yes, that's it. So Barbecue.
0: you love TP. You love toy poodles, exactly, and Tom Tom. polos, <laughs> and yeah. the podcast. Oh, it's all coming together just like a good uh, Neapolitan pizza. Exactly. Well, we look forward to going to Barbancino next oh, time. Oh, I can't We're wait Crown to Heights. have you.
2: Yeah, no, seriously, everyone if they fi- if you find yourselves in New York City or especially Brooklyn, you should just make the trip out there because it's 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 a great place. All right, Peter,
0: we wish you the best with pants. Thanks, man. Pizza. Yeah. Polos and more. And uh, we want you to come back and visit us real soon. Anytime we have a project or anything like promote, anything with a P. You know I'll welcome. be promoting it here. <laughs> you're welcome back. <laughs> <at> <laughs> Thanks, any point.
2: dude. Adios.
0: That's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. It's been a lovely... Hello? Hey, guy from my apartment complex. Happy
3: days. Hi. Hello. What's new with you? What's eating, you kid? Well, um, I, I have a bone to pick. With me? No, with uh, with, with your listeners. Uh-oh. Please don't attack the, the few that love us. Well, um, I posted these pictures of my socks on my Facebook, and nobody responded.
0: Oh right uh, the last time you were on you were talking about you found a pair of socks outside and you wanted um, people to identify what potential brand they were so you could go out and
3: get some more because you liked them. That's true but I wore them through so now they aren't even good anymore so I'm back to not having any socks I like. It's socks. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> it socks to be me. Well what, what else is
0: going on in your life? I mean you gotta put the next foot forward or on foot metaphors.
3: I don't know. I kind of flip flop in my life ambitions. I see how it is. Um, but it seems seem to be on the up. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know, like overall, my life's going good. I have certain nagging issues that I can never quite quite dispose of. Well, as long as they're not health, that's fu- that's fine. No, it's it's this thing. And I I this is the only time I really believe in like a spirit or any higher power. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, when I walk down the street, I don't know what I could do to make myself people to hear me better but for some reason when I walk by people on a sidewalk the same way people walk by me on a sidewalk they like don't hear me coming and so they like gasp people freak out when I walk by Wait, them. like you're
0: you're just like walking and then all of a sudden like ah!
3: yeah yeah there's pretty in, in grocery stores like I I like stand by people and they like look over their shoulder and like <laughs> jump what, are you doing something leering are you putting out a creepy energy I, I, I have no idea I I think I think that I, I I, so, I don't like to disturb people so much mm-hmm. that my... Um, you walk
0: around with one of those hotel signs on your wrist.
3: I, maybe I should. <laughs> um, but, like, my kinesphere, my aura, like, doesn't touch their aura or something, so mm-hmm. they, it, it, people freak out all the time. So what can we do to stop that, besides find out what kind of socks those were? Well, I'm thinking um, of carrying a cowbell around my neck. Good. Uh, we
0: always need more cowbell.
3: Yeah, on, in, like, the grocery store or something. Yeah, in the dairy section. I, th- I think that would make it so I get less weird looks. <laughs> That's a very good possibility. What else is going on? Well, um, I I have I have a pun for you. Give us the pun of the episode. So Lady Gaga was uh, trying to recycle her uh, her meat ballerina outfit, and she wanted she wanted to recycle it into into a sports drink or a soda, and she was quoted as saying. Oh, that this tutu solid flesh could melt, resolve, and form into a parentheses mountain dew. I don't know what to say.
0: Guy from my apartment complex, you live a sort of anonymous yet autonomous life. Would you please tell us a little bit what's going on in your personal life? Can you divulge anything about your family or.
3: Uh, well, I um I I, I just got off the phone with my parents actually, mm. uh, and my dad was talking to me about how uh, I shouldn't expect any inheritance from him whatsoever. Okay. Uh, which, you know, like it is a weird subject to with your parents. That's this sort of underlying thing that may or may not exist with your. Par- I don't know pe- people's relationship with their parents, uh, but my father told me that I will not have any inheritance. Because of how much he currently is, is paying in mortgage payments on, on the house that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at one point they were trying to sell the house. And I never heard why the house didn't get sold. And he told me why, they didn't, why the house was not sold. It was on the market for like a year. They finally had an offer. But one day, my cat did something that my cat's never done. So the papers to have the house sold are sitting on the kitchen table. They're signed, ready to go. And that night they, like, went out to dinner to the grocery store. While they were out, my cat climbed on top of the table and pooped on the papers. (laughs) (laughs) Now, my cat's left messes in, like, every room of the house. All the time he does this. But never has he climbed on top of the table and done this. My father was so moved... (laughs) By this gesture (laughs) that he did not sell the house. When I was 13 years old and I didn't want to move out of the house that I had, like, been born in. Uh And I, like, cried and pled with him. I went on, like, a three-day hunger strike. This did not move him to do that. Somehow my cat... Somehow my cat, by pooping on a table, has more sway than his 13-year-old son going on a hunger strike.
0: Well, America, the buck stops with...
3: Guy from my apartment complex is Kat. You know, I just, I know who doesn't wear the pants in my family, I guess.
0: Well, we just want our pants back. And we just want our house back. We always want Guy from my apartment complex back on TP with TP. Can you do us that favor? Can you come visit us every so often?
3: Yeah, yeah. I It's like I live here. Yeah. Well, see you next time. If there is an accident.
0: All right, that's our program. We want to thank you so much for checking us out. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We want to take this moment to thank our guests. Thanks to Anita DeFrance, Peter Vak, Guy from the Apartment Complex. Special thanks to Sammy J for the rhythms. Thanks to Bop, as always. Thank you, Trent. You'll see us next time, or you'll hear us next time, on TP with TP. That's the podcast with Tom Polos. There's always more at thepolosgrounds.com. Happy New Year's.